0: We're just getting started here. Don't leave me now. Um, Good morning. My name's Nick. One of the elders here. Yeah, hey. Yeah, I don't always expect a response. That was nice. Thank you. Good morning, church. Ah, all right. Okay, good. All right. They're alive. Um, Welcome to Mercy Hill. One of the elders, lead pastor here. I'll be bringing you guys God's word. I... Did want to say, um, Patty? I think maybe I was out while she made the announcement. Maybe she didn't. I told her to share with you, but um, did she share? She had a piece out. Okay, good. So uh, we're gonna be. You're gonna be with me to the end here uh, this morning. Usually we we end with a song of worship or two, but uh, today you got me because Patty uh, has the, the the colds that my kids still have actually. So Patty and her family are. Uh, under the weather too. My, if you could believe it, Chloe last night, uh, waking up with like another fever and having these like nightmares because of whatever's going on. So I appreciate your continued prayer, not just for them, for my wife too. I feel bad. You know, like like a lot of times husbands can, they can take turns, right, with their wives and terms of, but this is my job, you know, so it was like, like, okay, Megan, you go, you preach this Sunday. I'll stay home with the kids. It doesn't work that way. So She's sad, but uh, yeah, uh, appreciate your prayers on her behalf and my kids' behalf and Patty's kids' behalf, and that's the reason why we're changing the prayer meeting. Uh, we don't want to spread the funk any further. Uh, they got it from us. They're part of our home group. Patty's family is. Uh, so <laughs> we, feel, we feel bad about that. We don't want to spread it any further. Okay? So Jerry and Dee Dee's is where we're going to meet for prayer tonight. And finally, hopefully, hopefully you do understand our heart behind the um, connection cards. It's not about this weird cultish thing, you know. We've got to have all everyone's personal information. It's about uh, connecting. It's about communicating. It's about being an effective body uh, for Jesus Christ, and we. Um we just want to be faithful with your information. We want you to to also know that we're going to keep it, you know, private. We're not just going to throw it out there on the internet for everyone to come in and see where you live and what your number is, all that stuff too, okay? So we're going to try to be careful with that and uh, communicate with you only as uh, we feel is important and enough for our mission here at, at this church, all right? Um, and yeah, we got that big black box. It doesn't have a label on it, but that's ours. If you see it there, standing on three legs, uh, yeah, yeah, I needed a sign for it, but uh, I don't have one yet. So I had Moses on top of it, actually. I had this little Moses doll. It's pretty cool. My, Chloe put it up on top, and I thought bringing that, but I didn't. Uh, Megan thought it would be unprofessional. So, <laughs> look for the black box. It is ours. I have the key. Um, open up your Bibles, please. Luke. One. Verse um, 18 to 25 is what we're going to (sighs) read. Let's read this and we'll pray. We've been in in Luke's gospel here for a little bit, and we're going to continue on our way. Luke 1, verse 18 to 25, says this. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray, guys, before we begin. Jesus, I wonder if we're aware just how dependent we are upon you in these moments. We think we're so cool, (laughs) so autonomous, self-sufficient, independent. God, we need you for the next breath. But we need you for so much more than the physical, Lord. We need you for the spiritual. I wonder, I wonder, God, if we're aware that you're the one that gives vitality, gives life to our faith. That we need... God, to believe in God. That we are here this morning trusting You, leaning into You, because You've grabbed a hold of us. You've taken out hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh. You're making us human again, and it doesn't get more human than re-engaging with the one for whom we were made. So thank you for our faith. Thank you for the breath that's not just in our lungs, but that's in our souls. God, would you come and breathe afresh this morning? Would you help the doubting I'm praying for those that are drifting in doubt? and moving away from you. Jesus, would you grab a hold? We know you've gone before us, dropped anchor, and you're pulling us towards you. I pray, grab the people in this room that are drifting away. Grab me, God, prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. And bring us to yourself new and powerful ways here today in Jesus name we pray amen okay so the announcement and promise of a son to be born to Zechariah has now been fully delivered right verses 13 to 17 that's why, you know, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? What is this? All the stuff we've been spending the last few weeks looking at regarding uh, this son, John. Gabriel has now announced and, and given this full-on promise about what John's going to be like. This son that's going to come to this old man, his wife, Baron, and both of them advanced in years, Right? Here we are, and we've, we've spent now a number of weeks on that stuff, and we're supposed to, I think, imagine, at least I want us to, Zechariah kind of sitting back, listening to this, this angel, listening to Gabriel say these things, just kind of taking it all in, and now, verse 18, he speaks. Zechariah responds to all that's been spoken to him about this coming son of his, John the Baptist. And let's be honest, the things Zechariah has to say aren't exactly endearing. In fact, it's a little bit upsetting when we look underneath the surface of it. And that's what we're going to do today. But, 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 God's grace, as always, will have the final word. We're going to take two sermons to look at um, these seven or eight verses here, and I'm going to follow these verses through three headings. Number one, you'll see it on your handout, that's the one we're going to look at today, the drift of doubt, the drift of doubt. And then secondly, the discipline of grace. So the drift of doubt, verse 18. The discipline of grace, verses 19 to 23. And then we'll end up with the destiny of the saints in verses 24 and 25. This week, the drift of doubt is in our sights. So, as we begin looking at this drift of doubt, I I, want to read together again, verse 18. And I want to make note of, of exactly what Zechariah has to say here. This is his response to all this amazing stuff. What is it? What, what does he have to say about this? Does he just fall on his knees in worship of God who is gracious? Fortunately, it doesn't seem so. It says this, verse 18. Let's read it again. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. Now, I think we might be prone to uh, immediately, at least at first read, uh, sympathize with Zechariah here, right? I mean, after all, you look, you're like, okay, what the angel has to say is a bit is a bit crazy. You know, coming to this old man who, after all these years, now finally is going to have a son. You know, it, may, it makes sense then. We can sympathize with Zechariah's response. Are you serious? How, how is this going to happen? Are you kidding me? I mean, we prayed for this years and years ago, but we gave up hope a long while back. How is this going to happen? So we can sympathize at first with Zechariah, and, and, and his question seems relatively harmless. Maybe even, um, you know, appropriate. But I think, I think we cannot, we cannot follow our instincts here especially judging by Gabriel's response, there's something underneath the surface of this question. Um, Gabriel's not happy. God's not happy with this response. And so our immediate uh, tendency to sympathize, I think needs to be questioned here. And what we start to find, what we start to find is that beneath this question, there is a hardness of heart. There is a stubbornness. There is this drift of doubt that is cause for major concern. I think when we read um, through the Scriptures and all we kind of see are these words on a page, we might, I know we do, we can miss what's actually happening. We can miss it. Oh, he's just kind of talking to an angel and this is what he's said Hold on with me for a moment and let's look at this because one of the things we miss, I think, is the the hardness or the state of, of Zechariah's heart in this question. So let's go here. We might just read past the first part of verse 18. You might just think of it as like a little, oh, kind of introductory statement to get to the real good stuff. The first part says this And Zechariah said to the angel, You go, okay, all right, that's just setting me up for the content. Not exactly. Not exactly, because we have to remember, angel is not just a word, it is a magnificent being, (laughs) okay? So we might just read right through it, but what we ought to see is this radical being, magnificent in stature and glory, standing before Zechariah, and Zechariah is now going to say something to that being, that creature, and we ought to... Step back for a moment and let that sink in. Because you remember, you remember uh, what happens when the angel first appears to him on the right side of the altar of incense. What does it say Zechariah's initial response was to this creature, to this being, to this angel? It says in verse 12, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him, you see. So when angels show up all throughout the Scripture, it's not just kind of like, hey, buddy, we're just kind of talking with our pal. There is fear that comes into human hearts. And that's the appropriate response to such an appearance, right? It's like, whoa, what is this? And interestingly enough, throughout the first two chapters of Luke in particular, Every time an angel shows up, the same kind of response is elicited if If you look um, verse twenty nine when Gabriel appears to Mary, it says that she is greatly troubled, and then later on in chapter two, verse nine, when an angel of the Lord shows up to the shepherds, right what does it say happens to the shepherds that they're just you know start hanging out and giving high fives? No, it says they are filled. With fear. Filled with fear. That's the kind of of, of being that is standing before Zechariah in these moments. And so we ought to step back and think, whoa, he's just speaking to this kind of being. Speaking to the angel. And Zechariah said to the angel. So though initially Zechariah was taken back by fear, it seemed... He's regained his courage at this point, And he talks back. Talks back. And I hope now as we look at what he says, we see something of the insanity of this moment. And Zechariah said to the angel, this being who stands in the presence of God, come to bring a message from that God to him. How shall I know this? In other words, if I were to put it starkly, prove it. Prove it. What you're saying seems unreasonable to me. Prove it. You say this miracle is going to happen. How do I know that you and God are able to deliver on this? Your word isn't enough for me. You're starting to catch that flavor in this question. I think it's there. It doesn't always have to be the heart when we ask, you know, God, how how will I know this? Because we'll watch next week. We'll see Mary asking a very similar question with getting a completely different response. But I think what we're at, what we're seeing in Gabriel's response here is, is is this this heart of Zechariah beneath the question. All right, he's looking at the angel and he's saying, "Prove it. How in the world are you going to do this? As if God can't do whatever He pleases." Right. Now, I want to linger here for a moment because Zechariah's response is just one expression of the fundamental problem that plagues humanity as a whole, right? When we look at Zechariah, we say, how did he get so bold to look in the face of a glorious angel bringing the message of God and say, get out of here. Prove it to me. If you're serious, you're going to do this. How did Zechariah get get so bold, so brazen? I'll tell you. He's just—he's just one illustration of the problem that runs deep in human nature. All of us, right? Let me give you another example. This is, just made me think of of um, something I had written on Facebook a while back, and I, I wanted to read it to you. Here It says, <coughs> "I wrote this. Will scientists find an end to the universe? No." Because there isn't one. Amazingly, it is in our consideration of the earth's place within the cosmos that we see the finite actually interfacing with the fringes of the infinite. Every moment on earth is a mysterious alluring mix of finitude and infinity. A conversation we could say between man and God. Perhaps this is why the heavens are always spoken of as God's dwelling place. He is infinite, omnipresent, eternal. And the heavens with their corresponding, though analogical attributes, would seem to be an appropriate dwelling place for Him because they just go on forever just like He does. But even they can't contain Him, right? First Kings 8.27 He is all around us, all around us. We stare into the infinite, even the very face of God, every time we look up, if ever we do, in this busy world. Look up with me today and please don't tell me that the infinite everything came from a vacuous nothing. Indeed, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm nineteen one. Can you hear them? What do I read that? If you think that looking into the face of an angel and saying, prove it, is bold. What I'm getting at in this little Facebook post is, is that every time we look up and we see the infinite vast of the cosmos above us, It's as if we are looking into the face of God. The heavens are declaring His glory. He can be known through what He has made. And we look up and we say, prove it. Prove it. Not enough proof for me. There's a God. He better show Himself. Really, look around. It's everywhere. I mean, that's what the heavens are saying. And yet we look and we say, not enough evidence. And here's the craziest thing, you guys. The scientists, the scientists that, that, that get the closest, it would seem, to this creation and its wonder are actually oftentimes the, the same ones who, who are the most adamant, the most vicious in their denial of Him. So you have to say, whatever was happening with Zechariah, <laughs> it's not just happening with Zechariah. It's happening with scientists. It's not just happening with scientists. It's happening with all of mankind. We look at God and we say, not enough. Not enough for me. As I was thinking about this, it's, it's, it's almost like humanity can be pictured in what happens at Stephen Stoning. Do you remember this in Acts 7 when Stephen is talking? He's testifying to the Christ, to the Jewish leaders, right? And what happens when they hear all this glory and this wonder about the cross and these things? It says this, they cried out, this is verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him, Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. we won't hear it if the heavens are telling his glory they're saying he's everywhere he is he is he is miraculous he can do anything he is present he is real he is powerful all these things he's gracious he's just the heavens are saying all of this to us but if if the heavens are declaring his glory it's as if humanity is kind of saying all right all right I'm plugging my ears. I don't want to hear it. And if I can still hear him over the noise of my yelling and over my plugged ears, then I will go all the way and expunge him from the universe. Let's kill him. Let's get him out of here. That's what's happening in the human heart. That's how we respond to God naturally. It's uh, a horrible thing. This doubt, this demand for proof, this denial of who God is and what He's able to do, it's not just in Zechariah or scientists, it's in us all. It's in us all. Now, I want to ask the question, how did Zechariah get here? And obviously, I, I'm aware I'm overplaying my analysis a little bit. I don't think Zechariah say, hey, "I'm gonna, you know, get God out of my universe" or something like that. But he's I, he's on the road to that. So he, what I want us to understand is that is that doubt, doubt, has this drift to it. He's starting to doubt what God is able to do, what God says. Right? How will I know? This word isn't enough for me. Starting to doubt. And here's the thing. Doubt at first seems relatively harmless. But it has this drift to it. This current. It's not satisfied just kind of keeping us in one place. It wants to take us downstream. Alright? So here's what I want to want to show you with, with Zechariah. We try to imagine how did he get here? How did he get to a place where he could look into the face of an angel and say, Prove it. It's a scary place. I don't want to be there. I don't want you to be there. Right? We don't want to get there. How did this happen? I imagine this doubt began to pull at his heart years ago. Let's put ourselves in Zechariah's shoes. When we first face tragedy in the Lord, I think we're often more hopeful. Right in our younger years and 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 when it, when the when the the tragedy strikes and it's it's a bit green, we're hopeful right that God is going to move, so we we fall on our knees and we're praying and we believe I, I imagine Zechariah probably came to God those early years when they couldn't conceive a child when he found out that his wife it just wasn't it wasn't working, hit his knees and probably expected God to move God, you're the God of Abraham and Isaac. You're the God of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, all barren women. We've looked at that. You can do this, God. It is not beyond you. And here's the crazy thing. Zechariah was a priest, right? He knew the stories and he even taught these stories. He knew what God could do, what God has done. And beyond that, he probably even lived in the same place these patriarchs lived—the the hilly region of Judea, uh, which I won't go into a full-on Bible study of it, but it, more than likely, same same region that uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived. So I mean, he's there. He knows what God is able to do, and so first finds out, okay, I, I, we can't have a child, or we're not having one. Hits his knees with expectation, prayer after prayer, year after year. Callous is on his knees. Now callous is on his heart. What's the point? God doesn't hear. Where's the answer? I'm still praying. Nothing's happening. We still walk into the marketplace, and, and my wife is, is, is looked down upon, maybe even belittled, because of her barrenness. I'm still having to put my arm around her at night because, because she's breaking down what they're saying to her out there. The other ladies with all their kids are saying. I'm watching the neighbors bearing fruit and multiplying. You've been there, you watch other people's prayers be answered. You watch seen how this drift of doubt starts to happen. They just had their fifth child. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with God? Watching the wrinkles start to form under under their eyes and around their face. And it's over for us. Advanced in years. It's over. You see how this doubt starts to come in. And here's what happens. If the pain and the trial is not faithfully dealt with in an appropriate way, you start to accept a different interpretation of reality, a different interpretation of Yahweh, of God. Starts to, The doubt starts to settle in to your heart and become this kind of mode of operation, even in an unspoken way. That, I think, is what is underneath. There are years. There are years underneath this question in verse 18. Years. Well, that's where doubt is taking us now i want to follow this drift of doubt for a moment a bit further i want to see where it's trying to take us i i I think we can see with zechariah and with ourselves that this doubt believe it or not is ultimately drifting towards atheism that's where I was going with this whole stuff about creation and get out of my and It's ultimately going there, though it does so subtly, insidiously, moving slowly through various phases. So you hardly even notice. You start off with a little doubt and you wake up one day saying, God, who, where? Something happens in between there and that's what I want to look at. Today, in more detail, I want to look at this drift of doubt. It's my observation, just experientially, but also even historically, although we can't go through into much of that, I had cut some of that out, <laughs> that's in the outtakes, we'll have that in the extended uh, extended version, like Lord of the Rings or something, <laughs> it's my observation that this doubt seems to drift first towards, now bear with me, traditionalism, then naturalism, then liberalism, finally sending us over the edge into atheism. This is the devolution, if you will, of an atheist. And I want to consider them one by one. But before I do, there's something I should say. Really, all doubting of God, I, I believe. I could, you could disagree with me. I believe that all doubting of God has this atheistic principle at its core. Okay, We as creatures should not be doubting him. Something is wrong with that. It has this kind of atheistic God who uh, idea principle at its core. But as we move through these various phases, all that we're going to see is that principle just gets more settled. It gets more stubborn. It gets more egregious, more blatant, more aggressive. That's all that's happening. The same same seed same principle just getting harder and harder and settling in deeper and deeper until it reaches that full brazen atheistic confession now let's begin with traditionalism <coughs> i'll start to make sense of this for you if doubt is not dealt with before the lord in a right way if we don't and we'll look at how the, how we deal with doubt in a right way next week a little bit more but if it's not dealt with in a right way before the Lord, if we slowly give up the fight of faith, if we let it settle into our hearts, it's first going to move us towards traditionalism. What do I mean by traditionalism? Here I, I, I have in my mind, even though we might not even be aware of it, this doubt that kind of becomes the operating principle, whereby we still are doing, we're still doing all of our religious things. We're still doing all the stuff. It's tradition, right? We're still doing it, but we no longer expect God to be present in it. We no longer expect anything to happen because we're doing it. It's all just kind of ritual. It's all tradition, but there's no real potency, no real power. It might be because we've always done it. it might be because it just brings us comfort. But it's certainly not because we expect God to show up in the midst of it. We're going to witness this in just a couple of weeks, or a couple of months, I suppose, with Christmas. Right? And the churches swell twice a year, Easter and Christmas. Why? Tradition. If people don't actually worship the God of the incarnation, the God of the crucifixion and resurrection, but it's just, hey, it's what we've always done, and it feels good to be here. It just seems right on Christmas Eve. Now let's go home and open presents. Or whatever. But this is what we see going on with Zechariah. Zechariah is our case study. We're watching him, right? He's busy with all his religious deeds. He's a good priest, he's done the washings, he's wearing the right gear, he's getting all ready, the incense and the fire and all these things. He's going into the, the holy place at this point. He's probably down on his face, interceding on behalf of Israel. but does he actually expect that any of his activity, his religious duty and ritual, is going to accomplish anything? I would say no, because when the angel shows up and says, "I've heard your prayer." And something's going to happen. He says, prove it. I'm just doing what I've always done, and it never accomplishes anything. But now you're telling me it is? Prove it. You see what happens? He probably wasn't even aware, but doubt started to settle in, started to find a home in his heart. And now I'm doing all the stuff, but I don't expect God to actually move in response. How shall I know this? That's his question. You mean you're actually telling me you're going to do with me as you did with Abraham? That's what you're telling me? I once thought that you could do that. But now I just see it as a comforting story. Not an eager anticipation. How shall I know this? This was a point of conviction for me during my preparation. And I, I wanted, we have to turn this in on ourselves here at this moment. And ask ourselves, is this where we're at? Is this where I'm at? Why, 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 why am I here? Why are you here this morning? I mean, that is a, that is a critical question to ask. Why are you here? Is it just tradition? Is it just because it's what we've always done? Well, Sundays we go to church and then we go home and feel a little bit better about ourselves. I don't think that's why most of you are here. I hope that's not why, but it can still creep in this doubt, even though it's unspoken and we might not even be aware of it. We no longer expect God to be moving. Let me give you a couple examples. What, what is this book? What is this for you, for me? Is this just a good story? Is it just one philosophy among many, one religion among many? Is what I'm doing here with these words, is this just kind of the equivalent of like a a TED talk or a political rally or something? We're just kind of getting ourselves together and rallying ourselves up. Or, 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 when we open up this text, Is God Himself just calling forth the dead from the graves, bringing life? The very words that were spoken in the beginning, let there be light, is that happening in this room today? Is that the kind of anticipation, the kind of expectation with which we open up this work? What are we doing when we sing? Take some of the things we do, some of our tradition. We don't have the washings and the robes and all these things that Zechariah did, but we have our own traditions. And I want to ask, are what do, are we expecting him to move here, or is it just tradition? When we sing, what is that? Just kind of background music for my life? You know, a soundtrack? Is it just like is this a concert venue? kind of come in and you know if the worship's really loud and great then the spirit's moving if it's not then you know if it's just somebody with an acoustic then not as good you know it's like you go to see a band and, and half the members aren't there you know so is that what's happening up here it's funny we 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 were talking at my home group um about first time kind of coming into churches and seeing people sing to god Seeing people worship Him. Yeah. And how weird. I mean, uh, 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 Jason and I in particular, coming from non-Christian backgrounds, I think, we'd come in and it was weird, right? Like, what are they doing? Why are hands up in the air? And why are eyes closed? And what is going on? They're engaging this being. They're engaging this God that we can't see. And I remember, I remember the first time I raised my hands in worship. Yeah, it took me a couple of weeks. I started off with kind of like you know the the down low movement with the open hands. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm down here right now. Okay, God, you see me. And then and then all of a sudden you go full you go full spread. And but but, but what what took place in that moment was like, I know I am engaged. I am worshiping. I am pouring out my heart to this God in heaven who hears me and delights in my praise. Just. He is there and He loves me. And I love Him and I need Him. That's what I'm saying. And you want to know what happens? This just becomes another move, another tradition, another thing. It's just normal. Singing and okay, yeah, and it's another time to kind of sip my coffee or whatever. It's like, no! Are we expecting that God is in the midst of this and singing to Him like He is? Because He is. Or you look at prayer, right? Right? Prayers that we do up here even. And you think, okay, we're we just kind of strategically locating prayer uh, to kind of fill in the awkward transitions in our service. Is that, is that what prayer is for? Is it just to kind of help with the flow? Or do we actually believe that prayer, I mean, God is, is, is condescending and listening in. Do we believe that? Do you remember that prayer meeting uh, that the early church had for Peter when he was in prison? This is, I mean, this is this is exactly what kind of stuff I'm talking about. They're meeting to pray for Peter while he's in prison, imprisoned by Herod. They're meeting to pray for Peter. God, you release him. You can do it, God. Intervene, right? And then there's a knock at the door. There's a knock at the door. And the servant girl goes over. Your name's like Rhoda or something. It's not that most beautiful name. Otherwise, you name your daughter her because it's a it's a cool story. And she opens, or she she see, she recognizes that it's Peter's voice, and she runs back in. It's Peter. He's out, and everybody looks at her. And this is the, they're praying underneath. You're interrupting our prayers for one thing. Second of all, you are out of your mind. Acts twelve fifteen. I mean, we're praying, Rhoda, but we don't expect anything to happen. You mean to tell me Peter's out there? You you lost it? Is that? What happens? You see, we just start doing it without any expectation that real stuff is happening, that God can move, that He is moving. I'm going more application this morning than big theological stuff. That'll be next week, okay? (laughs) That's why I broke it into two. I'm already out of time anyways. What is the deal with this? Gosh. (sighs) Yeah, but I'm telling you, God hears our prayers. And He moves. Even if it takes years. Even if we don't see it or get it. And you don't want doubt to settle in. Become this operating principle that moves you towards traditionalism. We do it, but we do not expect. We stop expecting anything to happen. Second, naturalism. I'm going to have to go faster here. If traditionalism is allowed to settle in our hearts and in the church. The drift of doubt is not going to let us stay there. It seems to me the next stop along the way is naturalism. What do I mean by this? I think here we become more self-conscious in our doubt. We start to, we start to limit what God is able to do based upon what we think is reasonable. Okay? Naturalism is understood in, against supernaturalism, right? Supernaturalism says God could do anything. Naturalism says, come on, let's get real. Supernatural doesn't happen. If we see miracles in the Bible, we'll conform it, we'll make sense of it. I did some research on this. I mean, this has been going on forever, really, especially since the Enlightenment, though. Looking at the scriptures, we still want to keep the scriptures, but these miracles. I just saw this the other day. I mean, this is just in. Get ready. <laughs> a, a research team of scientists in Israel determined how Jesus walked on water. A few well-positioned stones, right? <laughs> That's it. That's how he did it. So we keep the stories. We keep the scripture. But we get rid of a miracle. We, we not only now stop expecting, but this stop expecting turns into, it, it, it continues along the way towards stop believing. You see, there's only a matter of time, if you're just kind of doing this tradition thing, it starts to leach a vanity into the whole religious enterprise. I no longer expect, and now I, I no longer believe it's even possible. It's unreasonable for these things to take place. And we see this with Zechariah as well. <laughs> look, at the, <clears throat> excuse me, look at the reason he gives for his doubt. It says this in verse 18, How shall I know this? For, for, I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, look at me. It's not possible. It's not possible. Look at me. Look at my wife. Angel, maybe you came, you know, 30 years ago, but now it's beyond hope. It is impossible. And Zechariah misses the fact that this is the, the whole point of this movement. You remember what what, what Gabriel would say to Mary. He would say this in, um, where am I? Verse 36 of chapter 1. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Is the whole thing he's trying to drive into Zechariah. Nothing will be impossible. It's what we all need to see. If God is God, then this whole universe is supernatural. He cannot be limited. To tell him what he can and cannot do in your life is the equivalent of telling a painter, this is my attempt at a metaphor, telling a painter that because the paint is dry, he can no longer add any more to it. You know what I'm saying? Because you've set certain laws in place, because nature is, 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 is here and stable relatively, it's like saying, well, now you can't come in and add any, anything else to it. And he said, I got the paint. I'm the artist. I got the creativity. I can do whatever I want. I painted it, whether it's dry or not. And so here I come, Zechariah. Here I come, church. I can do things. I can do the impossible. I define what is and is not possible. And with me, anything is possible. Stop. Uh, Where am I? I think I skipped something, which is probably good for you. (laughs) Let me ask you this. Uh, Let's just do a personal analysis and we'll move on. Are we here? We're in this naturalistic place has our doubt gotten to that point? We might not say it this boldly, but here's how you know it's starting to happen. When you're faced with problems, when you're faced with issues, your immediate response isn't to cry out to God for help, but to try to fix it. In fact, prayer is kind of seen as like slowing down the process of, 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 of fixing the issue. Right? Why would I spend time on my knees? I need to fix this. This is bothering me. This is hard. You start to see this naturalistic principle. Prayer's not going to work. I no longer expect it to work, and I no longer even believe it will work. Or, here's another way you see it. Maybe, in fact, you are praying. Maybe you do pray, and I, I've done this. And you see God move, but you kind of leave this back door open for naturalism. You say, after you see the answered prayer, Oh, that would have happened anyway. God didn't actually do anything. He doesn't actually hear me and move. And that just would have happened anyway. You see this? You see how this, this doubt starts to settle in? And we start to do this. We, we get God out of the picture. Our hearts just get God out of the picture. Peter didn't really get freed from prison with by an angel. I mean, come on. You seen Shawshank Redemption? Probably it was like that. It's like a pickaxe or something. That's how he got out. We have all these natural explanations for what God is doing supernaturally all around us. But I want to invite back into the church the God of the miracle, the God of the resurrection. Christianity has, as it, at its core, the miraculous. If we give that up, like so many have, we lose. We lose what Christianity is. This is where we go with liberalism, and I do need to move quicker here. I will. Uh, we'll see. Naturalism takes residence in our hearts, but it doesn't stay there. It moves towards liberalism. Here's what I'm talking about: not political liberalism, theological liberalism. Stop expecting becomes stop believing. Stop believing becomes stop obeying. If I stop thinking that God is actually involved and a part of this world, if this revelation is from Him, then I stop altogether even feeling like I need to listen to His word. And there's whole theological movements that go in this direction where it says, okay, listen, the scriptures are kind of nice. We like them. There's this kernel of truth. But let's be honest, there's this husk of all this ancient, superstitious, weird stuff that we need to rip off to get to some of the good things like the Sermon on the Mount and loving one another, that sort of thing. This is where whole denominations went. This is why Westminster even exists because Princeton did that. They accepted this doubt that became kind of that traditional thing and the, the naturalism thing and the enlightenment and then just get rid of it all in the liberalism. Let's just start editing God's Word to fit modern sensibilities. And I'll tell you, we can do this, guys. We can find ourselves in this same place. We can find ourselves with the liberalist, if you will, where, where we start hearing what God has to say. kind of editing it. Editing it. I don't, uh, you know, if God isn't actually moving, if God isn't actually hearing my prayers, why would I do the hard stuff of obedience? Start twisting, start, start moving it around. So here's what you have. Here's what you have in churches around the Bay Area. Here's what you have in, in whole denominations. Here's what you have going on. You have this, this, this the forms of religion that are still there. You might have priests, you might have pews, you might have big buildings, but the faith that makes any sense of it all is gone. The faith that makes any sense of it all is gone. It's like these these cicadas that would leave these shells on my on my trees in Arizona in my backyard. It's like there's still this semblance of something alive there, but the substance has long since flown away. We're no longer holding to who God is. We're no longer looking for Him. We're no longer even obeying Him. We might keep the forms, but we're no longer even Christian. And this is why it moves finally to that final place of atheism, which is where, here's what happens. Why keep on playing religion? If you don't expect, if you don't believe, if you don't obey, Get rid of it, right? Get rid of it. Stop all together. What seems to be at first a mere innocent question truly has within its compass the very seed of a full-bodied atheism. And I think that's how the world went wrong at the beginning, right? You remember this? An innocent question it would seem. Did God really say? In other words, make God prove it. Did God really say this innocent question carries us, wants to drift all the way towards this atheism? Get God out. Don't want him anymore. This question, seemingly innocent question, now has a world of sin, sorrow, suffering, and death in its debt. This drift, it's nothing new, you guys. It's as old as humanity. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's God going to do with this? We follow Zechariah's story and we can see it. You follow Zechariah and you can see what God is going to do with this natural drift that's in all of us. And it's amazing. And I'll have to fly here, but we're going to do it. What is God going to do? Drop down to verse 20. We're going to spend much more time on this next week. I'm just going to give you, just give you the first rays of the sun here this morning. Gabriel is responding to the heart behind Zechariah's question, right? With a per- pretty sturdy rebuke. He gives Zechariah a sign, the sign he's, he, he, he wanted, but perhaps not the one he's looking for. You read this in verse 20. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak. It's a devastating blow to his pride, I assume, which is probably the point. It's almost like this spiritual timeout, if you will. You go to the corner, sit and think about what you have done. Except this is going to last nine months. Silent, Zechariah, but 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 the angel doesn't stop there we keep reading and this is where it gets glorious this is where the sun starts to break until that day he says until the day behold you will be silent and able to speak until the day that these things namely all that i said would would come to pass with john your son and everything else these things take place Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Which will be fulfilled in their time. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? You didn't believe it, Zechariah. Therefore, you'll be silent. But it's still going to happen. The plan is still moving forward. Here's the most amazing thing. God's plan for it to be accomplished doesn't require man's faith it's not dependent upon us his words being fulfilled not dependent upon man's faith in fact it's quite the opposite don't don't miss this it is exactly opposite our faith our faith is dependent upon him fulfilling his word and accomplishing his plan if he doesn't go through with his plan i will never believe He's got to change this heart. He's got to change the current, the drift of this doubt that moves towards get out of my life, God. And that's exactly what he's going to do with Zechariah and with us. The narrative continues. Zechariah waits in silence and watches while God moves forward to do just this. He takes this unbelieving man up the mountains, as it were, and he gives Zechariah a glimpse of the glory of his grace. You just you just stay silent and you watch what I'm about to do, Zechariah. Nine months pass. The day comes. And here's the most amazing thing. Zechariah's silence gives way to song. Gives way to song. Eight days after the birth of his son, when it came time to circumcise and name the child, we read this in verse 64. His mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And he sings this song in verses 68 to 79, and here is the the incredible thing if you look at it. The song is all about Jesus from beginning to end you would think maybe, okay, John the Baptist shows up in there and that's kind of the object of his praise Is You gave me a son, thank you. But really, where this song goes is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And even when, even when John, his son, is mentioned, it's in relation to this Jesus, this Christ. Verse 76, we read it. You, child, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the one who brings salvation. Jesus is the one who forgives sins. Jesus is the sunrise. He's the light of the world. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is our peace. He's just saying, John, you are just this little piece in the middle going towards the one who can move not just me, but all of humanity from silence and unbelief to the songs of the faithful. It's all about Christ. It's all about this coming one. Zechariah is just a picture in anticipation of what Jesus would do for us all. What he's going to do for us all. Consider this with me. Christ is going to absorb the full, and I mean the full drift of our doubt on the cross. The only faithful one absorbing the full drift of our doubt. Here's what I mean. Atheism is not just denial of God's existence like we've talked about, but killing Him altogether. Get out of my universe. And there's no more climactic expression of that atheism than at the cross where they literally did just that. And here's what Jesus says as He absorbs this. He's like, okay, you want to kill me? Come on, kill me. But I will take this death. I will take your killing me and I will flip it on its head and make it my very means of saving you. He takes the atheistic principle and makes it subservient to Christian faith. You understand this? This is what's so amazing. He just absorbs this whole current of, of, of doubt. And he just turns it back to blessing for us. And here's what happens in his resurrection, in his ascension. He goes before us, right? To the presence of the Father. He goes back upstream, if you will. Drops anchor there. Comes back to us in the Holy Spirit. Pulls us, our nature, everything back with Him to be where He is, upstream. In the first Adam, all of humanity careening, drifting down over the cliffs of atheism, right? Second Adam enters the water, pulling us back up. Pulling us back up. This is why Hebrews 6, verse 19 speaks of Him like this. This is where we'll close. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. You have an anchor, guys. This drift, He's not going to let it get too far. He has implanted a new nature, a new heart, and He is pulling you there. You have a forerunner and an anchor in Him. And so you might be there. You might be drifting even this morning. I'm praying for you. And I know God is saying, I'm not giving up here. I am the God who turns the silence of unbelief into the songs of the faithful. I will not let you go. Let's get out of that current. Let's look to the sun. I'm going to leave us there. Let's pray, guys. Jesus, it's you. You're our hope. You're the one we love. We look to you. We thank you. Thank you that you have gone ahead of us. Thank you that you pull us against the current of our flesh. God, infuse in this church an expectation that you're here. We're not just doing this because it's tradition. And a belief that You're not only here, but you you can move. You can do the impossible. And more than that, God, because of that, I pray that this church would be so obedient, listening to every word, trusting you, even when it doesn't make sense, even when the culture tells us we're ridiculous, holding to an ancient document. God, you can do all these things. Your word is truth. And the one who stayed true to that word to the end is in us. Thank you, Jesus for all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.